I'm Lloyd Freeman, and this is Dimensions of Diversity. College, it was such a great time. And what made it so great for me was it was so much more than a place to learn. It was a community. And that community was diverse and opened my eyes to new cultures and experiences. It helped shape me into the person and more specifically the leader I am today. But how do we keep that pipeline of college and leaders more and more diverse? My guest today focuses on doing just that. I'm joined by David Garza, the Executive Director for Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, uh, you can tell this is a, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, uh, not only, of course, being a college graduate, but also, um, you know, just kind of being also a leader in corporate America and understanding the work that you do there at LIDA is so very important to ensure that even in spaces where I may have been, you know, the first, I won't be the last. So let's back up uh, and just tell us generally, what is LIDA? Absolutely. Thank you. LIDA is the premier national organization dedicated to providing transformational educational experiences for promising students from underrepresented backgrounds from all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, a main part of the work that we do to do that is we build access to some of the top colleges in this country. And once we get students into these colleges, we provide additional support to help them ensure that they will find success on campus and then beyond. So a couple of things I want you to define even more. You said sure. that these are individuals from, uh, is it underrepresented or underserved communities? How do you define those communities? So typically what we do is that we invite applicants uh, who come from families uh, at a low income uh, threshold, basically. Our average family income for our scholars is approximately $34,000, $35,000 per year. Mm -hmm. So um, that's primarily uh, the background that we see our, our scholars coming from. They come from all over the country, various communities. Uh, when we do our recruitment, we really are looking to target areas, again, that, that we do not see adequate representation of on college campuses or, or where the numbers are, are lagging behind. Perfect. And so how do you accomplish that mission? Great. So... We start with uh, doing recruitment uh, to get this cohort together. So every year we find a cohort of approximately 100 students. Um, we do everything from traveling in different places in the country, going to high schools, doing presentations. In recent years, since the pandemic, as you can imagine, a lot of this has gone virtual. It's been virtual. Which we have yeah. Exactly, which has actually been a blessing because uh, even this past fall, when we had the capacity to do travel again, uh, just by nature of how things have gone, so much of our recruitment activity was actually virtual, and we were able to do things like provide workshops for families of applicants, both in English oh, yeah. and in Spanish, for the very first time. And obviously, as you can imagine, we're able to reach communities, schools, individuals that we may not have the capacity to reach if we were only doing travel uh, by virtue of this virtual outreach. So um, we, again, get the word out. We, we use, <laughs> we partner with uh, social media influencers who are in the communities that we're trying to reach. We rely smart, on our- Very smart. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be, I mean, I guess you wouldn't be surprised, but maybe just at my age, I'm a little surprised by <laughs> how, how effective that is, that when you have an influencer, for example, you know, one person we worked with this past fall who has the large following in the Native American community, right? How that mm -hmm. can affect applications that you're getting uh, and, and affect the numbers of applicants that come in. Well, um, also targeting this age demographic, I mean, to be able to, you know, utilize social media and leverage those platforms has probably been tremendous for your um, the number of applicants that you've gotten for the program. 
Definitely, definitely. And, and you know, as you mentioned that, I should also specify that the people who are applying to LIDA, they are coming to us uh, when they are juniors in high school. Mm -hmm. So that's when they're applying. Um, we go through a selections process where we're evaluating anywhere from, let's say, 1,100 to 1,500 applications for 100 slots. So it is very oh, selective. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the students who do get selected then uh, participate in what we call our Summer Institute, which is a five-week program that we do on Princeton University's campus. So for five weeks, we bring together these incredible students from all over the country, and we work with them on everything from building a target list of colleges where they'll be applying, doing writing instruction, both on their college application essays, but also just academic writing in general, doing leadership training, doing test preparation. So we're really there to provide them with all the tools that will help them be successful in that college application process. Once they then go back for their senior year of high school, we have another team that then works with them to navigate the application process itself and to make sure that all these applications are getting in uh, and to help them think about their choices once they start getting these notifications back about whether or not they've been accepted. Uh, jumping ahead, once they actually do go to college, we have yet another team, uh, our college success team, that works with them, again, just to make sure that they have everything they need to be successful on campus. As you can imagine, uh, for many first-generation college students, uh, students coming from low-income backgrounds, it can be quite a culture shift and an adjustment when they're going from their hometowns and their, their family environment to, you know, an elite college, if that's where they end up. And so we want to make sure that they're prepared, uh, that they have access to anything they need, whether it's academic support, whether it's mental health support. So we have uh, staff that checks in with them on a regular basis that actually visits them on campus in person, again, just to make sure that they are fully equipped for success. Um, then the last step, the last stage of our programming is with our career and alumni services department. So if you think of this as a continuum that begins when they're still in high school, this is kind of the end of the continuum where we're guaranteeing their success, beginning with the college application, but going, going all the way through you know, their search to find a career and to establish what that's gonna look like for them. So we have uh, staff that do career counseling. Uh, we do an event every year called a Career Institute where we bring together everyone at the end of the summer. Uh, we introduce them to our corporate partners. We do training and everything that'll be necessary, again, for them to help figure out what the path is for them and how they will get there. So from A to Z, uh, we're, we're there to support them, to guarantee their success. And to the original point that we were talking about a few minutes ago, this really is about equalizing opportunity. So we know that there's inequality in, in college access and that when students are looking at where they're gonna go, there's not a level playing field. Uh, we know that children of parents who are in the top 1% of income in this country are 77% more likely to attend an Ivy League institution or MIT wow. or Stanford Yeah, uh, compared to those in the bottom 20%, so 77% times more likely. So that that is that is quite, I think, a stunning statistic. I think we all know this. We, we know that this exists, but when you see the actual detail, it, it's pretty eye-opening. Um, there was a study by the Jack Kent Cook Foundation that was uh, produced a few years ago that aimed to figure out why this is. And one of the reasons is that the students at the, at the lower end of the income scale 
tend not even to apply to some of these top level colleges one because they think they can't afford it and two because they just they just assume that it's not something that is available to them so Mm -hmm. this process of of, or this this problem of inequality is not just an admissions issue it's it's an it's an issue of showing students what is actually possible for them and so that's why we're doing this work because we want students to know that you know wherever you're from whatever your background is you belong in these institutions you belong in places of leadership you belong in the boardroom there is no reason why anyone's access who has that promise uh, should be denied. Well, and there's a level of exposure from what I'm hearing from you. Uh, It is more than just telling them, you know, that you belong, but it's taking them to those college campuses and letting them actually see and feel um, uh, the experience of being on one of those college campuses. Uh, Just so I can make sure that I understand the program exactly, is it only focused on trying to get the 100 uh, students in your cohort to go to one of the elite universities, or is it generally open, but with some kind of a uh, emphasis on the elite universities? That is a great question. Um, the answer to that is that it's not restricted to just the elite, you know, what we would call the elite or the Ivy Plus schools. Um, historically, that has been where we've seen a lot of our students end up. And I think that the reason for that is that, you know, in this country, we see that 50% of government leaders and 49% of corporate leaders come from one of only 12 colleges in this country. <laughs> right. So the, the pipeline and and, and the, the path to leadership has been a very narrow one historically in this country. So if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, you know, maybe I would be saying, well, we need to get them to the Ivy League because that is the path. I think it's no secret, though, that the world has evolved and that Every single day, we see articles in in, in the paper, we see, uh, you know, just news pieces on how these ideas of what the college experience is, has changed and shifted. So we by no means tell our students, oh, you have to go to an Ivy League school, and that's the way to be successful. We also want them to sort of find the best fit within that, you know, with that understanding of, of academic success. Uh, to find the best fit for them. And so if that's an HBCU, we support that, we applaud it, we promote that. If it's uh, a state school that that is close to home and, and that's gonna get them to where they need to be, that is, is what we supply, that's what we pr- uh, promote for them as well. So the answer to your question is no, we, we, we don't limit it. That's not our only measure of success, but it is it is where many of our students have ended up. Gotcha. Well, you should know that HBCUs are definitely friends to our show. So I know a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear that. What really yeah. is myself. <laughs> yeah. And, and let me tell you that it, it is it is something that we care about. We have uh, a week from tonight, uh, you know, while we are having this conversation, a week from today on, on May 3rd, we have our gala, which is an annual event. And one of our honorees is Marcus Shaw, who is the CEO of a company or a group called Alt Finance. And they're all about partnering with HBCUs to get students from these colleges into finance careers. And, and that's you know one of the one of the topics that we're spotlighting that evening is, is all around HBCUs. So very much uh, we're supporters, we believe in that, and uh, we are thrilled when our students end up there. So David, tell me a bit more about your background and what led you to Toledo. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I 
I work at LIDA and I've been with the organization since July of 2022. So not the longest period yet, but mm -hmm. I found out about the opening uh, at, in the executive director position at a moment when I was looking to see sort of what was next for me. I've, I've worked in the nonprofit field for about 25 years. And prior to working at LIDA, I was at another organization that primarily does scholarships for LGBTQ students uh, all over the country. When I saw LIDA's website, when I did my research, when I heard and read the stories of the scholars that LIDA supports, my brain and my heart simultaneously exploded because one, these are incredible stories of leaders who are going to go out and change the world, and many of them already are. But also, when I was reading about their backgrounds and their dreams and what they're trying to do, I felt like I was reading about my own story. Um, I was born and raised in a town on the Mexican border called Laredo, Texas. Uh, my parents were not able to finish college, and so I was a first-generation college student myself. And when I was growing up, you know, my parents struggled uh, early in my life to make ends meet. We were in this underrepresented community. And as I was growing up, they talked often about the need for me to go to college and the fact that this was something that was not an option. I had to do it. And the good thing is that I loved hearing that because I really wanted to do it. I saw mm -hmm. college as a way to experience the world and, and to, you know, obviously learn and, and, and sort of become the person that I wanted to be, even if I didn't know exactly who that person was yet at that stage. <laughs> um, and so I tried everything I could to be a good student. I was the drum major of the band. I was, uh, you know, we had a literary magazine. I was the editor in chief. I was in spelling bees and I was trying to do everything I could to be successful. And then when I was the senior in high school, my guidance counselor came to me and said, there's someone I want you to meet. He's the publisher of the local paper and he's recruiting for Princeton. And I think you should meet him. And when I heard that, I, I share this with people all the time, that it was like somebody telling me, oh, NASA's in town. Maybe you'll go to the moon. <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and this goes to what I was just saying a few minutes ago, that part of this challenge is that for students from these communities that we come from, we do not grow up seeing a Princeton as an option. Right. as a viable option, right? right? Maybe in a dream dream fantasy scenario, perhaps, but I, yeah, it but really never then, occurred to me. Yeah, yeah well, right, but the, the dream scenario could still just be going to college. I mean, this is dreaming big. Exactly. You're talking about now going to Princeton University. That's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and level. so, yeah, so, you know, I obviously met with him, and then he was wonderful and had my interview. He encouraged me to apply. I did that, and then very quickly just put it out of my mind because I assumed nothing was going to come from it. Um, you know, a few months later, you know, this was in the early 90s. So the notification came in the real mail, right? So I was checking <laughs> my mail one day and I got the big fat envelope. And so it was, you know, you know what that means when you get the big right. fat envelope. Right. And I remember just standing there holding it with my hand shaking and being like, oh my God. And so um, once I was accepted, he paid for me to visit campus so that I, you wow. know, which was incredible because I was able to see students from South Texas who were there, who were doing it who showed me it was possible. And so, you know, that's my story. And I share it because Lita did not exist when I was in high school, but I had that experience of someone seeing something in me that I did not know was there, opening up a path for me that I did not know existed and just completely changing my life. And that's what Lita does. So when I saw this organization and I saw the work that it does, and when I read all of these stories, I, as I mentioned, I, I felt like I was seeing 
myself in a way. I, I, I mean, I wish I could be as, as smart and promising as our scholars, but I, I felt like I was seeing a version of my story. And this is an opportunity for me to try to do what someone else has done for me in my life. And so, you know, when you meet our scholars, when you read their stories, it, as you can imagine, they are so impressive. They are doing incredible things in the community. And uh, you just, you can't be, you can't help but be amazed uh, when you meet our scholars. What's the role of the scholars' parents in this entire process? Is there some education uh, that the parents are afforded around the college uh, application process or affording uh, college, or is it just really to support them and being in the program and then you all handle the rest? It's more like we handle the rest, but you know, I will say that when we do recruitment now, uh, we are doing more in the way of providing opportunities for parents to come to us and ask questions, because as mm -hmm. you can imagine, if you're the parent of, of a student who's still in high school and they come to you and they say, hey, you know, I want to go across the country for the summer and, you know, you don't have to pay for anything. A lot of times parents are like, you want to go where and do what and why? You know? um, so <laughs> they heard NASA more... and the moon at that point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's funny because uh, we hear from our scholars sometimes and their parents, you know, the first time I heard about Lita, I thought it was a scam because it's it's too good to be true for some wow. of them. You know, just there's that we don't charge. Obviously, we don't charge them anything. Right. Uh, this is all paid for uh, travel, the, the Princeton experience, all of it. Right. No cost to them. Uh, but all of that to say that we do workshops uh, during the application process. So families can come to us and ask the questions, you know, anything like how is my my son or daughter going to get from the airport to the Princeton campus or you know how are you going to keep them safe while they're there for five weeks all of those questions uh we answer in workshops uh, as i think i mentioned we do them in english and in spanish as of this past fall so really trying to get the parents as uh, up to date on everything we do and as engaged as possible for sure that is fantastic uh, I know you've added a, a new element to LIDA, which is LIDA Legal, and that program is designed to expand the pipeline for some of those same students to be able to get into law schools. Can you tell me a bit more about that program? Absolutely. Uh, we are so thrilled with this. We just launched this new program in January, and LIDA Legal, as you mentioned, is a law school access program that is available to members of the LIDA community. So you have to have already been a LIDA scholar or alum. Uh -huh. Uh, at any point to apply to this program. But the reason we do it is because we see that the kind of student that we're bringing on into the LIDA community um, has this desire to make change in the world, right? That's one of the things we're looking for when we look at applications. We're looking for leadership potential and for you know that, that specific kind of ambition. What we find is that for a lot of our scholars, the shape of that or the way that they envision making change in the world is through the law sector. And so we have a, a pretty significant percentage of our alumni we found have gone into the law uh, world, law careers. And so we want to make sure that we're doing everything possible to help our scholars do that successfully. So we've partnered with NYU Law School, Harvard Law School, and Yale Law School to launch this program. Um, and with advantage testing, by the way, as well. And so we started in January. Uh, the first stages of this eight-month program are all focused on test prep, again, provided by Advantage Testing. Uh, so really deep, intense uh, practice, strategy sessions, uh, everything, you know, so that they're 
LSAT experience is as positive as possible. Uh, <laughs> then we also invite, yeah, I know it's stressful. Um, PTSD but, is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. LSAT is four letters and then the, the other four letters as well. But, um, you know, it, it, is, it is very intensive preparation that, that helps get those scores up as high as possible. Uh, we then uh, also provide workshops that are provided by our partner law, uh, law schools. So for example, Harvard will be doing a workshop, Yale will be doing one. And these are topics, everything ranging from, you know, how to choose the field of law that you want to study, um, how to be successful in your first year of law school. So again, providing them with everything uh, that they need to, to be successful in that application process, and then to prepare for success once they're actually uh, at law school. We're also partnering with some law firms uh, in the New York City area and beyond, so we can provide mentorships for these oh, students. Amazing. In, yeah, and what's really cool about these mentorships is that they're not necessarily what you think of, you know, when you think of sort of one-to-one overtime mentorships. We have a mentorship bank, so depending on the need that the scholar faces in that moment, so if they say, for example, I'm really curious about a career in immigration law, uh, let me let me go look at Lita's resources and they can access someone who specializes in that either at one of our partner law firms or at the law schools. And they can then build a rapport with them, uh, have communication with them and then sort of get their needs met in that way. So we're really thrilled to offer that. Um, again, it, it launched in January. And so we have our very first cohort of scholars in this program. Uh, these scholars are 100% students of color and they wow. are over 80% women. And so the demographics of this cohort are, are pretty uh, pretty amazing. And, and these are students who are, again, incredibly ambitious. When we ask them what their goals are, you know, for some of them, it's, you know, it's the Supreme Court. You know what I mean? It is, it is, they're, they're going all the way. And, and so this is a group of people who really wants to make positive change in the world. And this is something that we want to do to help them get there. Well, we could certainly use them on the Supreme Court. So I think that's a, we have we have to segue there. And, and that's talk actually about a this. very good segue. Well, because yeah. you, you did mention that 100% of the students, at least in that cohort who are going to law school are students of color. But I can imagine some large percentage of all of the uh, LIDA scholars are, are students of color. Um, affirmative action. It is before the Supreme Court. Uh, we are uh, awaiting what is going to be the future of affirmative action in uh, our higher education system. Um, depending upon what happens with affirmative action, how would that impact uh, the work that you do? This is the question everybody is asking uh, from admissions offices at universities to our office here at LIDA. We're all on pause, right? Trying to figure out what the world looks like after June. I think that there's a pretty common assumption and understanding that the Supreme Court in some fashion will change affirmative action or end it as we know it. Uh, we do not know the scope of what that will look like and we don't know the details on how that affects, for example, university admissions moving forward. I think what I would say is that for us at LIDA, you know, as a caveat, of course, we are a 501c3 organization. We do not take political stances of any kind, but on a personal level, I can say, and I think the organization as a whole would say that we care about students from underrepresented backgrounds. Right. Period. We are here to ensure that they find success. I think that the work we do will be more important than ever as universities are trying to figure out 
how do we maintain a diverse student body? How do we keep that level of, um, of, of just diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of demographics? How do we keep that present? Because in 2023, whatever happens with the Supreme Court, if you read data, if you look at studies, I would say that it, it's not debatable. The answer is diversity is important in education. It is a positive uh, for all universities and colleges. It is just an undeniable key to success. Absolutely. For, absolutely. So as they try to figure out how do we maintain that, I think an organization like LIDA is here to say we are identifying these students. As we've discussed, we do not have a racial requirement. We don't say you know, you have to be of X background or of X demographic in order to be a, a leader scholar. We're primarily looking at uh, financial background and so forth, uh, but that does help us get a diverse cohort of students, clearly. And when you look at the makeup of our, um, of, of our cohorts, when you look at cohort 18, which is the students that are currently applying to college and getting their notifications right now, 96% of that cohort is people of color. And again, that's with, without us saying, this is a requirement for you to be a leader scholar. So whatever happens with the Supreme Court, we are yielding these results. We are yielding diversity. And I think that as, as much as we can partner with colleges and universities to help maintain that, we are here to do it. And, and that work for us does not change. Well, and there might even be a larger role for you to play um, if you know affirmative action is no more. Uh, again, because you do have that intentionality and that focus on being able to bring those particular um, students to the colleges and universities, again, and providing them uh, even the knowledge as to how do you get into those universities. And that's the first yeah. step in the battle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The, the other thing I would just say about the Supreme Court and whatever is gonna happen there, is that I think a lot of us are talking about admission rates and the demographics of you know, student bodies and so forth. Beyond that, there's a real mental health component to all of this. I, I think if you're the individual student who's a, person, who's a person of color and you know that the Supreme Court is making a decision about you, and where you're coming from and whether or not you belong in these spaces. People internalize that, of course. I, I know I would if I were still a student. And so beyond admission rates and, and, and demographic numbers, we're talking about human stories and we're talking about human lives. And that's something that's a little bit less talked about is sort of, you know, students who are at the Princeton universities or Harvard post this conversation, what does that do? you know, for their sense of belonging, for their sense of, of uh, you know, some students who have imposter syndrome. This is something that is very much related to, I think, how students will be feeling just generally moving forward. I agree. Uh, and and your background and whether it, that includes, you know, your racial or ethnic background, um, whatever that is, that is a part of your story, you know, as you write those essays to get you into college, I mean, it's hard for you to excise out and say, oh, but don't talk about race. You know, we don't want race to be a right. part of your story because, you know, that background, how you got there to that moment where you're applying to college, whether you're the first generation or whether there's a legacy, you know, and you will be the, the second generation of people going to, you know, a particular college or university. It's all important. Uh, and so to Absolutely. then stop a particular group from even talking about that, 
pretty hard, but I'm so happy that programs like yours exist. Before we wrap up, talk to me about the successes uh, that you've experienced uh, with the program. We, we heard about, you know, so many of your alumni who have taken the law school route, love it, noble profession. Uh, but what about the others? What are some other successes? Yeah, well, let me start just talking overall. And so we see that with our scholars, 90% of them, over 90% of them actually graduate within six years, which is significantly higher than the national average. And, you know, that number gets sliced and diced a few different ways, depending on what demographic you're looking at, et cetera. But roughly, this is about twice the national average for graduation within six years. So we're incredibly proud of that. Uh, beyond that, you know, we have alumni who are, uh, again, successful in law careers. We have someone who is uh, working with a DA's office, for example, out in California. We have people who are successful in the arts. They're really in every sector of society and, and, and they're making positive impacts in the communities that they come from and where they live. And so, you know, beyond job titles, right? And beyond this person is, is you know, an executive at this corporation, I, th I think the bigger picture here is, is the impact that they're making on their communities. And that's something that we instill in them from the moment they began their LIDA experience. So one thing I, I didn't mention about the Summer Institute is that beyond the training, beyond the writing instruction, we also have them do uh, the design of a community impact project. So they choose the topic. They usually choose something that they see as affecting their own community. And then they build an entire project around it to address that issue. Very often, and this is just an exercise for the summer, very often we see that they end up actually going and making it happen in real life. So we see these projects and everything from I want to establish a podcast to address issues of mental health in my community to, you know, I want to build some kind of uh, intervention to have better environmental outcomes in my city. Obviously, there's a range. And so we are training them from, a, from the moment they start with us to not just think about their own individual success, but to think about how they're going to translate that into community impact. So I think that is a success story of LIDA. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have the numbers. We have the graduation rates. Um, but it's really the bigger picture. And that's something that we're going to see grow over time. You know, right now we're at about 1,850 alumni in our community every year that we, that we, that, that happens, you know, that number grows, obviously, uh, next year will be our 20th anniversary. So we'll be celebrating that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing those numbers of alumni increase, obviously. So the impact on the country just grows with time. Where can our attendees go to learn more about LIDA? Uh, we're also on all the social media channels. So you, you can Google uh, Lita Scholars and, and you will find us there. Of course, you're on social media. It takes us back to their very Absolutely. first point. <laughs> and how you target <laughs> exactly, folks for exactly. the program. David, you are doing amazing work. Uh, you can see the results of all the amazing work that you're doing individually, but that the organization is doing. And I must tell you, by way of uh, a personal offer, Princeton's about 45 minutes from my house. So if any of your, uh, uh, you want to take any of your cohorts down to my house, I'll, I'll definitely have a backyard barbecue for all of them. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> That's great. And vice versa, you're welcome to come visit the program as well. Uh, so please do. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show.